Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I'm the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me today is another Twitter lurker, M. Phil, P-H-I-L-D-G. You can go find him and follow and interact because he's well up for meeting more Bitcoiners and more people like yourself who um, are open to new ideas, critical thinking, big ideas, and changing uh, your outlook on, on everything that we've ever known before and questioning what we've been told and where the future is going to take us because he's down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And if you're listening, you likely are too. So this is um, a great episode from a young man who lost a lot of faith in the educational system when he became a teacher in it and got a very, very close look at it. So make sure you, you tune in and listen to this because I think it's very important to listen to his story and what, what he was facing in that system. And you know that floats my boat when this gets challenged. So it was a great, and of course, that's why he reached out to me in the first place because of, uh, of this kind of context. So I won't uh, ruin it anymore. If you're in the UK and you want to start stacking some sats, start your Bitcoin journey with the UK's only Bitcoin-only exchange. Don't head anywhere else because they will try and sell you shitcoins or altcoins. And the reason they will try and do that is to make sure that they make commission on your every in and out buy. So keep it simple. Go to one place that sells one thing, and that's Bitcoin, and start doing it in a very slow manner dollar cost average, fiat cost average, pound cost average, whatever it is, just a little bit per week, whatever you're comfortable with. You can do that at coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. You can do it in the US with swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. The swan now flies across all 50 states and they have you covered. Both companies have brilliant customer service and are focused on Bitcoin education. They're both Bitcoin only and they're there for you. They have a brilliant team on either side of the pond and I hope to do an episode next year with both of these founders so we can get into their heads and see where 2021 is going to take us. So let's get to this show. Thank you again, Adam, for putting this all together and Jim Reaper for the website. That's once-bitten.com. Let's do this. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Take care. Catch you after the show. Hey, guys. Welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten Podcast. Joining us today, M MD Phil Dog. Uh, no, M, M Phil DG. M Phil DG. Uh, welcome. Welcome, M Phil DG. Thank you for reaching out on Twitter and really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Hey, no, I really appreciate you, you know, actually responding and uh, and making me feel very welcome. So thanks very much. No problem. And we'll get into all of uh, all of how this came about in, uh, in in short order. But of course, I have to take a seat back here and enjoy a beer 
whilst I hand the reins over to Lauren to ask the first question. Um, so I heard that you are a teacher and I was wondering why... I actually had three questions, but Daddy said don't ask. <laughs> um, uh, why did you decide to um, leave the school? Like, Yeah, so I never actually became a full teacher. I was working for a while, for a couple of years, as an unqualified teacher. Um, and I was teaching um, sort of after GCSE, so maybe 16, 17, 18-year-olds, um, primarily teaching economics and business studies. Um, and I kind of thought that's what I wanted to do. Um, I had a couple of sort of realizations, I suppose, sort of gradually, and then suddenly that it wasn't what I wanted. And I also kind of got railroaded out of it. Um, so, yeah, not to go into too fine the details, but it was not uh, a match. It wasn't my, my destiny, shall we say. Cool. I, I, yeah. <laughs> okay, shall we pass the, uh, the mic over to, to Caitlin for Caitlin's question? That's a yes. That's a rhetorical um, question. Caitlin, your question. <laughs> um, so what made you want to become a teacher? Because I can't imagine any student would like to be a teacher. Well, I mean, when I was a student, especially when I was studying uh, A-levels, I did find myself thinking I could do a better job than the, the person standing up at the front of this room <laughs> quite often. Um, it was also quite circumstantial because I studied economics um, at university. Uh, and when you finish doing that, you have a nice piece of paper and you don't actually have any applicable skills. So as they say, those who can't do teach. And so I kind of found myself doing that um, also a bit through opportunity. And my first teaching role was actually at a, uh, a sixth form college that uh, my dad was already teaching at. So I got an in there. Um, and then sort of I enjoyed that experience and I thought, yeah, maybe this is a career. I mean, it's definitely a career. Why, why shouldn't it be my career? So that's kind of how it happened. Um, but as I say, it didn't last too long. Only I, I think I was teaching for about two years, basically, uh, at two different colleges. Good. Yeah. Okay. Lauren, you, you're good? Well, I did have two more questions, but you said only one for child. <laughs> only one so, for child, yeah, because you, you, you guys, you, you, you drain all my questions. <laughs> is it a quick question that you have? Or, or is it one of so, your deep and meaningful, no, open-ended questions? So, was, um, were you like um, a teacher what take like working, come in the class when the other teacher's sick, or you just... Come in whenever you want to. Um, yeah, so that is kind of how it started. So um, the economics teacher at this first college just happened to be leaving. Um, my dad was there teaching maths and he said, oh, my son's just finished studying economics. He could do this. And I was like, yeah, all right, I'll do it. Um, so I, I came in as a sort of you know midway through the year uh, replacement emergency substitute. Um, and uh, I got to work alongside another um, substitute economics teacher in more of a sort of assistant teacher role. Uh, so I did sort of come and go a little bit as I pleased and didn't have all the responsibility in my in my first year doing it. Um, in the second, the second year at the second college, I was very much sort of thrown in with all the responsibility. 
Um, and it's a lot of responsibility when you sort of have, you know, a group of uh, students whose futures more or less, you know, to a certain extent depend on how good you are. So that's a, I mean, that's, that's, I didn't mind that pressure because the actual teaching was, was the best thing about the job. And, you know, the rewards that I got at the end from students who had done really well and got the results they needed and stuff, that was really fulfilling. And if that was all there was to it, I would probably still be doing it. Um, but unfortunately, teachers are not very well treated. They get a lot of, uh, they don't get a lot of sort of help to do their job, a lot of hindrance um, by the sort of bureaucracy of the education system. Um, How did I know you were going to say that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, Administrative yeah, I'm a Bitcoiner, so I, I hate bureaucracy. <laughs> Bitcoiners hate administrative processes and bureaucracy, people sticking in their noses for no reason other than to rent-seek and slow down like your own work. your old job? Um, which one? <laughs> My old job in foreign exchange? Yeah. Yeah. No, that was fine. There was very, uh. there was, th that was good. That was fast moving. That was fast paced. There was very little um, administrative. There was a lot of Bullshit politics, <laughs> but that's uh, that's another story for another day. <laughs> well, do you girls want to say goodnight? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yep. Goodbye and goodnight. Bye. Nice talking Do you have a beer, mate? Are you? Uh, I do. I'm are gonna you crack one right now. Partaking. Well, cheers. Cheers. Virtual cheers. Great to meet you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, like I said, thank you so much for for reaching out. And uh, I think it'd probably be a good idea to. If we use your original um, message, if you don't mind, just to kind of, course, of uh, yeah. give the listeners uh, a context of of how we connected or why we connected. Uh, so if I'll perhaps read like a paragraph at a time and, and use that as a guide down the rabbit hole, uh, I think it'd be a really fun and cool thing to do. So you, you started off, uh, I would really love to come on the podcast if you're looking at doing more episodes with randomers, <laughs> which is a, a nice word. <laughs> Uh, randomers or plebs, you know, wh whatever you uh, identify with, uh, yeah, sure. I think I have an interesting story. Uh, I found Bitcoin when I was studying economics at university and I started down the path to becoming an A-level teacher until I couldn't suffer the cognitive dissonance anymore. So let's go down there. Like, you know, the, you, you're at university, you're studying economics, you've, it, and this has been a common story okay. with um, some, some other young guys that uh, I've had on the show when they, they've, they've found Austrian economics or Bitcoin somehow whilst studying economics and listening to the flapping head at the front of the class by day, reading the Bitcoin standard and whatever else by night. Uh, what, what was that kind of process like for you and uh, like the internal struggles that you were facing? Yeah, that is um, very much it. it was, uh, I was in the middle of my degree um, and I, I, I just felt like the stuff that we were studying wasn't necessarily the real world. Uh, I just had a feeling that I wasn't learning about the real world. And so I had a, a thirst for that kind of information and sort of, uh, you know, I did some research, did some reading on my own time. Um, I, you know, at one point I found the, the spot in the textbook where it tells you what fractional reserve banking is 
And, you know, at that point, I already knew what it was. And I was sort of like, no one else seems to know this. <laughs> and so when I found it in the textbook, I was like, I've got it. There it is. They admitted it. They, they make it up. It's all bullshit. Um, but obviously, you know, that message doesn't seem to land with people. Um, everyone has this, this cognitive dissonance where they kind of don't want to address that issue. Um, so anyway, in I think it was like, well, it was 2011 um, when I, I was watching Max Kaiser's show uh, pretty religiously to try and get an <laughs> inkling of what's going on in the real world. Um, and he obviously brought up Bitcoin. So that was my first touch. And at that time, I was, I knew that everything was fucked. Excuse the French. And um, bring it on. I wanted to basically have a go at redesigning a system or find out who was, who was, you know, working on alternative financial systems. And when I found Bitcoin the first time, I didn't know that that was it. Um, because I very much had uh, the sort of, uh, almost status kind of ingrained thinking that you get from standard education where I thought that this has to be a government initiative. Um, it has to be, uh, you know, very equality oriented. It has to, you know, serve society in a, an obvious and, you know, purposeful way and be basically centrally controlled because I didn't really know any other way. Um, so when I saw Bitcoin, I thought, well, that isn't really what I'm looking for. It's interesting, but um, I don't think that's it because I have ideas about how I could do it better. Um, and I guess the more I just learned about it, the more I came to like it and realize that no one is doing it better. Um, and this is this is actually it. I don't know exactly at what point I made that particular leap. Um, but by 2013, I had bought my first Bitcoin. Um, and not a whole lot of it. Obviously, everyone wishes they had just bought a bit more. I was obviously quite a poor student. Um, <laughs> I, I basically got through university on, on savings that my family had saved up for me. Um, I wasn't working, so I didn't really have an income. I was just budgeting and getting by, so I didn't really have you know, money to spare. Um, but I spent a little bit and then I kind of witnessed the, the bull run at the end of 2013, got really, really excited, got learning more and more. And um, so, yeah, I would say that was when I sort of started to think that this is it. Um, and by that point, you know, I'd already finished my degree and um, I did my um, dissertation on basically the effect of... Um, budget deficits and trade deficits on a country. And um, I was throwing in, you know, references um, to stuff that was not really, you know, peer-reviewed literature. Um, and it wasn't well received by my, by my lecturers. Um, and the whole thing made me feel a little bit sort of nihilistic. And I remember in my um, Viva interview at the end of my degree, um, after I had... <laughs> persuaded my interviewers that I didn't plagiarize my dissertation. <laughs> um, they, uh, they asked me what I was going to do afterwards. And at that point, I was like, well, this is all wrecked. Um, so I'm probably just going to go home, back to my parents' house, and probably sign on the dole. And uh, 
I don't see any incentive really for me to do anything else because this is all a fast. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I did that for a while and I, I sort of bummed around <laughs> until this teaching opportunity came up. Um, by which point I was already sort of, uh, you know, trying to spread the word, the word about Bitcoin. Um, I spoke about it with all my colleagues, the teachers, I spoke about it with all the students, um, obviously without trying to sell them anything and being really inappropriate with, uh, with the young people, just sort of introduce them to the idea. Um, yeah. And, uh, I guess the difficulty in, in the, the teaching aspect, if, if we move on to that paragraph yet, is that, um, you have to basically teach lies. And so I was presenting the, the curriculum and then what I really wanted to say was, by the way, this is not true. Here's the truth, by the way. But you can't do that because if I confuse these these students too much, they'll fail their exams, basically. And that will be bad for them and bad for me. I'll look awful. So I had to just kind of stomach it. Um, and, you know, for a while I thought maybe I can do that because it is, even though it's, you know, a farce, the economic syllabus it is kind of a challenging thing to wrap your head around. It's not like it's super boring. I mean, actually, it is pretty boring, but um, it's complex. So it's a challenge. So you can you can challenge yourself to, to think this way if you really want to. But it's not the right way to think. Uh, and so in the long run, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> that's That's crazy. So you, you basically you, you come to that point where you know you you you're just going against every moral fiber in your body, but you're dragging yourself out of bed every morning to go in to teach people something that you fundamentally know is wrong. And yeah, and the, all based the, the tricky on thing as well is that because. I was inexperienced. I didn't have a lot of resources. I was basically reteaching myself the A-level syllabus at the same time in order to understand it well enough to teach it again. And, um, yeah, and that is very time-consuming. And so I, I just didn't have, you know, time to really think, and I just knew that I was wasting my time, and it became very difficult, yeah. If you looked around... At your, I'm sure you weren't the only economics teacher at the school, or were you? Or were there like uh, one or two of you uh, taking separate classes? Yeah. So in in my first role, there was um, there was two of us. There was uh, another substitute economics teacher who came in, a guy who I, I really really liked. Um, he was very very cool, um, but he didn't believe. Um, you know, when I would speak to him after the class, and I'd say. If you you know you know about this this alternate opinion on on this sort of stuff we're talking about and he he had obviously come across it and he'd been sort of trained to poo poo it um, and wouldn't entertain it so I never got him to buy any Bitcoin although I I did tell him to do it for you know every day for <laughs> for a good few months but yeah that's it 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 just shows you how ingrained it is right uh, um, nobody challenges the the narrative, and even if you do challenge the narrative, you know, bring that narrative to them, like, uh, and just one aspect of Austrian economics, they'll just shoot it down without even 
Yeah, you know, they've, they've got their counterpoints that are, you know, the dogmatic Keynesian counterpoints, and they won't look past it. And the other thing is that economics teachers are looked at kind of strangely in, in the school setting because economics is the kind of thing that most people think is just witchcraft. They've been told that it's too complicated for them. Um, and so, you know, even in, in a, a staff room full of, um, you know, business department teachers, you're looked at as the kind of weird one who knows who knows about the witchcraft. And so I think a lot of other economics teachers have gotten used to that and they go around with an air of, you know, you couldn't possibly understand anyway. Um, so I don't, I don't need to sort of challenge myself. You can't even challenge me. So, yeah. <laughs> Weird. I was going to ask you about the staff room, actually, because, uh, you know, as as students, we never we never see what goes on behind the closed doors. Uh, that's an interesting insight. I, I didn't realize that kind of thing was going on. Uh, you know, at that level, it's like bow to the the almighty economics teacher that knows one or two things about how financial. I mean, we just we just believe that this this person knows everything there is to know about the financial system. Yeah, I did have um, you know colleagues come to me with questions that is because I mean business studies A level syllabus is just the economic syllabus just really stripped down um, and made very, very simple and digestible. Um, whereas economics is sort of, it's almost as if it's designed to be, you know, business studies hard mode, but just as pointless. Um, <laughs> and um, so they do, they came to me with, with questions about business studies um, because they assumed that I'm, I'm sort of them in hard mode which I kind of was, but. <laughs> yeah, very, very strange. So when you were looking at these textbooks, when when you, you were talking about earlier, you were talking about coming across that chapter on fractional reserve banking, and you'd already kind of figured out from, from your own research uh, what fractional reserve banking basically is, what were the textbooks saying and... What were you? How did that make you feel already knowing what you knew? Um, I had basically been like trying to deal with with what appears to be you know two versions of the truth by looking for stuff that would support you know what I what I knew to be true, what I believed, and so I was I was looking at you know like the BBC economics uh, page on the BBC website, and I did find although they took it down. Um, where they described what fractional reserve banking was, um, it's almost like you know being crazy, or everyone thinks you're crazy, but you, you know you're not. You you have to kind of, you know, persuade everyone else that they're the crazy ones. Uh, you can find it's all written there, you know, no, but no one sort of cares to look. Um, so that was really just really difficult to deal with, and you know you can talk to. Uh, you know, friends and family about it. And in my experience, you kind of get the same point. Like, even if they're very empathetic towards you, it's kind of like, well, that isn't my problem. So, uh, yeah, it sort of gets gets neglected. Um, like I say, I found this page in the textbook. And for me, it was like, look, they admitted it. It's not a secret. It is true. I'm not mad. But of course, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> No, you've got to put down what they want to see on the exam paper at the end of the day. Mm. 
they won't put that question down in the exam, by the way. Um, they've put it in the textbook because I think they probably have to. Um, but you know, they're not they're not openly discussing it, obviously. Mate, that's madness. So, <laughs> so you 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 mentioned that your your father was a teacher. Is he a teacher of economics as well, or not? Um, no. So he's been um, his career is in uh, sort of lean manufacturing primarily. So he's been private sector for his whole career, and then um, just basically while I was studying, I think uh, he he you know finished turning one business around, um, which tends to make him very unpopular because obviously he's going to be uh, you know restructuring and hiring and firing. So his his career is basically go to a company, fix it, become incredibly unpopular, and then basically have to leave, find another project to work on. So he'd, he'd finished a project, and he kind of thought that he wanted to be a teacher. Um, so he qualified. Um, he worked as a teacher, I think, for maybe two years. And then uh, he just went back into industry again, because uh, I think probably some of the same reasons as me, probably primarily just for money, though. Right, yeah. Because at the end of the day, we're all we're all on this hamster wheel, right? We've got to figure out a way to to best um, play this this fiat system um, whilst we are still under it. Do you think then, like growing up, watching your dad as a businessman, did that give you kind of um, this this insight into how economics was was really working because when you know like you said if you what what's the what's the saying um if you can't do it teach it, mm. yeah those who can't do teach those uh, who can't do teach whereas clearly the old man he can do he can turn businesses around and and you know uh, get get results yeah um so teaching would have just not sat very well um, because, you know, so when, when you were growing up, how much of an influence do you think that had? Um, I wouldn't actually say that that's, that was a huge influence because I think when I was younger, my dad's work was not very visible to me. I sort of knew that he wore a suit and I knew that he had people that worked for him, that he was a boss, of, you know, some people, um, we had to move around the country um, a couple of times um, when he was sort of, you know, got a new job somewhere. Um, but largely, I was kind of, I'd say, kind of shielded from all that. Um, you know, he just had a really good income. He was able to, you know, put me and my, my brother and sister through private school. Um, and, yeah, he was a great provider. Um, he didn't really impart a lot of wisdom to me in terms of business, I wouldn't say. Probably something just lurking back there that, um, you know, when, when you see somebody going out and, and doing that and, and creating their own path rather than, uh, you know, just just towing the line, essentially. They're, they're, I don't know. It's it's a fascinating thing that, that I've started, to, you know, thinking about more. Mm. You know, what connects us? What connects us to, to, to the rabbit hole? And I had this – the reason I do it, big shout-out to Bubba uh, Redneck on Twitter – uh, you know, he he was talking about his life story, and he said he'd been falling down the rabbit hole since 1985. Hmm. And he he just gets me thinking more and more. It's like you know what it's like the rabbit hole. Once you're in there, 
you just yeah. <laughs> I, I can tell you the the first time I glimpsed the rabbit hole um mm-hmm. I was 15 and um I was in so GCSE year and I was doing a piece of maths coursework and at this point I've tried and I can't remember what the coursework was about at all um but it so happened that I had to gather a bit of data about countries and I noticed I had loads of you know numbers this is the first time I heard of GDP and I saw that the countries with the highest GDP, the countries with the highest like life expectancy, but uh, you know quality of life, et cetera, et cetera, um, also have the highest debt. And I was like, huh? Hmm. Shouldn't they be? Shouldn't that be the other way around? Shouldn't they be the, you know, the ones with all the money, being the lenders, not the borrowers? And I definitely I stewed on that for a good few years not really knowing what to make of it um and then obviously came full circle later on when i was studying and of course yeah that makes sense we're we're just sort of uh you know ransoming our own futures (laughs) to get these nice things in the short term 15 you saw that that and how many more years did you have to wait around for for bitcoin to kind of tap you on the shoulder that would be another five or four or five. Yeah. Random, isn't it? Mm. There's something there. There's, there's definitely something there. Right. Okay. So we'll, we'll move on with, um, with what uh, you, you messaged me. Um, since swerving away from education as a career, I've been working in international payroll and have gone through the withering experience of our company being acquired by private equity and the descent into unfathomable corporate bullshit. So I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure this. I did. Write I'm sure that. there's a few stories. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure there's a few stories we can uh, we can uncover here. So, right, you, you you see, you've you've been inside the the belly of the beast of the education system. You've seen the emperor is wearing no clothes, and you're just like, this isn't for me. And it, you know. As you said, like teaching lies, that's not going to sit very well with anybody. Yeah. So having having seen that, you you exit that. How do you end up working for uh, a company um, in international payroll? Right. Well, I could if, uh, to talk a little bit about my my exit. I um yes. So I'd only been at this college for one year. Um, I knew I had done a really good job, um, but at this point. Uh, results hadn't come out, so I, I didn't have any proof um, that you know my students were all going to be really successful, um, which they were, 100% A to C um, in A2, oh, no. which is practically unheard of. Um, but yeah, so as a, as an unqualified teacher, as a new teacher, they 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 do a lot of observations on you. Um, you have to tick a lot of boxes, um, jump through a lot of hoops. And basically, every time I had an observation, you know, I came out of it feeling like yeah, I nailed all those boxes, all those hoops, um, and I gave a really engaging lesson. Um, and you know, I was I had a lot of self confidence. And um, every single time, without fail, the observer would speak to me afterwards. And this would be either my head of department or another sort of uh, colleague slightly higher up the scale. And every single time they made me feel awful. 
They told me that I had done terribly. They picked holes in absolutely everything. Um, I came out of each of those experiences wanting to quit on the spot. Um, and the reason that I stuck it out for the whole year was partly for those students and partly just because uh, I had at that point very recently become a father. And so I needed the job quite badly, even though it was incredibly badly paid because I was unqualified, extremely badly paid. Um, so this, this is like, you know, the most challenging year of my life, basically. Um, I've got a newborn and I'm having to work sort of 60 plus hours a week, getting paid almost nothing. And um, these people were making me feel like I was doing an awful job. Um, and I basically would go, you know, and have one-to-ones with my head of department and put my case across. And it came to a point towards the end of the, towards the end of the academic year where I was saying, um, I can't really afford to do this for another year. Um, so I need to ask for a raise. And I think from the moment that I mentioned that, I, I was sort of an enemy uh, of the state, as it were. And um, they basically proceeded to uh, sort of go down a disciplinary route, um, ending in a hilarious tribunal um, in which they dismissed all my arguments, um, didn't listen to really anything I had to say, um, and basically decided that they, they wouldn't be, um, be able to award me a pay rise and that they wouldn't be asking me to come back the next year. And I had already said to them, if I can't have a pay rise, then I, I can't come back next year. So that ended pretty sourly. Um, my head of department had a, you know, a little bit of a uh, remorse for me. She knew that this was, you know, an injustice that was happening. Um, I'd basically just been used for a year as very, very cheap labor, and then I was being disposed of because I had asked for for something more. And um, yeah, so then I left that, and then results day came in the middle of the summer, and I went back into the college, and um, you know, saw my colleagues, saw a lot of my students, found out that the results were amazing, and uh, got an apology from the, the head of department. And then uh, I walked out and, and didn't go back. I haven't spoken to anyone from there, although one one teacher did try to contact me in 2017 to ask me if I had their seed phrase, <laughs> which I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh. so yeah, I was basically badly, badly needed a job, um, had to leave this job and I happened to apply amongst the myriad of applications to this payroll company. And at the time, I, I think the, the job ad said that it, they were a payroll company, but the job description was very, uh, you know, had no substance to it. It wasn't clear at all what they were doing. But I got an interview, um, and the salary was not, you know, not great, but better than um, better than a unqualified teacher salary. So I was happy to go to the interview, interviewed really well, and got the job. And so it turned out that this was a small company um, where the CEO was the the owner, and um, they had a really young, uh, vibrant team. 
who were basically basically just doing customer service role. It was it's an outsourcing company. So the clients would outsource international payroll needs to us, and we would actually outsource them again to providers in each different country around the world, and then basically just do communications between clients and subcontractors and sort of pass off that we were providing all the value to the client. Um, and there was insane margins in that business, um, especially for small, uh, small payrolls. Companies are prepared to pay a lot to hire one person. You know, if they're hiring 100 or 1,000 employees, they want value. If they're hiring one, they just want to hear that it can be done and they will sign and they will pay. And as long as you get it done, the price point is unimportant to them. So there's loads of money to be made. Um, this company's got this vibrant team. The management is is brilliant. They have this ethos of um, make sure that everyone is at 80% capacity and make sure that everyone's got time to have a laugh and uh, not feel pressured. And by the way, if something goes wrong, it isn't your fault because you know, we, we rely on these subcontractors. They're the, they're the experts. So if something went wrong, you know, you, you've got email chains. You can say, look, this was the advice we were given. Anyway, it was a really uh, friendly atmosphere. The employees all felt very cared for, well uh, rewarded, protected, uh, looked after. The CEO was a great laugh, went on stag do's, um, you know, it was a really, really great place to work. And uh, so I was there for a couple of years where things were absolutely great. Um, I wasn't making huge amounts of money, but I was making enough and I didn't feel the need to look elsewhere because, you know, although the work itself was, was not, you know, enjoyable per se, the, the atmosphere, the company was great. And then um, this private equity acquisition has happened and things are basically just uh just degraded very very slowly it's like a kind of a rot where um you know even before the acquisition actually happened the owners were having to do certain things tighten certain budgets um you know maybe up standards here and there make sure things are more standardized uh, in order to get their, you know, their exit for the for the private equity, and so that's when things started to become a little bit less fun. Um, and then once the acquisition actually happened, um, I don't know all the details of this, but the 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 management, the upper management people, basically all left. Um, I think a lot of them, you know, had shares and got a payout in the acquisition, probably a very very good one. Um, and so they were comfortable just to leave. Um, and so the rest of the team is just kind of left uh, with these new managers brought in, unfamiliar with the business model, you know, unfamiliar with the people. Um, and the whole atmosphere um, is gone, uh, you know. And, um, you know, they've brought in all these rules, all these different practices. They've tried to change some of the procedures and some of the processes and this and that and they have just put you know all of the all of the grunts or the low-level employees to loads more hassle they've uh you know changed the um commission structures and made everyone you know financially less well off um and the whole business is basically just 
just sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so that's thank where, God you have Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. So that's where I am right now. Um, basically, just hoping um, at some point soon to be able to step off the uh, the treadmill and just get out of dodge. Um, and this is exactly what you said here. And like now, I struggle every day with the insight that I've gained through Bitcoin. Between watching the COVID crisis accelerate us towards a dystopian future and fantasies of quitting my job with "fuck you" money, just hoping that this uh, this trump card that we have, which is Bitcoin, will literally save the world. I mean, this is we pin a lot of hope on this, I suppose. Yeah, I us mean, plebs. It, it, from a, a very personal angle, just my biggest hope is just to be. Um, you know, well off enough to to be able to do something else, um, to maybe you know take some time to retrain, maybe learn some coding, um, that sort of thing. Uh, just do stuff that I want to do instead of spending all my time doing what I have to do. Um, that's the dream, really. And I mean, that's just on my on my personal level, and not to mention, I mean, all the the wider macro you know implications of of a Bitcoin standard in the world. I mean, yeah, it's, um, it's difficult. I mean, like, like I said in that message, it seems like the, the forces, you know, of, of sort of good and evil in the world are ramping up right now. Um, they're, you know, in contention and they've never been stronger, either of them. I mean, this, this COVID thing, the more I um, the more I learn about it, the more I can't help but feel that this is um, just part of the big economic playbook. You know, people talk about the big reset. I wish I could dismiss that as conspiracy theory, but I know too much, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it it scares the hell out of me. So I spend half the day, you know, worrying that humanity might be doomed. And uh, the other half, fantasizing about uh, a hyper hyper Bitcoinization, you know, fantastic future that we could possibly have. Um, and the two are in such stark contrast. It's very difficult to decide which is, you know, going to be the prevailing force. And when you look around that office, uh, some of your colleagues have gone through the same BS that you've gone through. I'm guessing you've not managed to convert everybody in there to, to start stacking sats. Uh, you're probably still a lonely guy. Um, yeah. Do, do, the, are they just blissfully unaware, do you think? Like, yeah, whatever, job sucks. You know, I'll go out and get drunk on Friday night and everything will be fine the weekend and then I'll come back Monday morning and do all this again for another 50 years like we're supposed to? That seems or, to be that seems to be what they think, yeah. I mean... Um, I know that they, a lot of them, are as pissed off as I am with the whole, um, you know, corporate direction that the company's gone. Um, I know, you know, we have a lot of discontent uh, in terms of the the, the company. Um, but I would say that actually, that the sort of um, my colleagues at, at that company have probably been my least successful orange pilling uh, sort of ground. Um, I think I have a couple of them who have a very small, um, very small stack, but that they um, are really unreceptive. 
um, much less receptive than my sort of close friends and family. Um, so I can't wait to tell all them I told you so, for sure. <laughs> Stay humble. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I can't always be humble. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's a fine line, isn't it? Between staying humble and um, uh, the vindication, yeah, exactly. I mean, I um, like I say, when I back when I was teaching, I I mentioned it to a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my students. I got people reach out to me in 2017 when I had already sort of closed that chapter uh, of my book and um, telling me like some of my students came to me. And, you know, I've got a guy who was in university who went, I listened to what you said. I bought some Bitcoin. Um, and actually, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think he sold, you know, pretty close to the top. Um, and so he was like, you know, 19, 20 year old guy in uni who had tens of thousands of pounds behind him. Um, so <laughs> I didn't uh, keep up closely with his uh, exploits, but I assume he had a great time at uni. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I like to think I had something to do with that. Um, and like I say, I had, uh, I had a colleague I gave away quite a bit, not like loads and loads of, of Bitcoin, not not close to a lot of Bitcoin, but I gave away small bits of Bitcoin to a lot of people back in the day. And uh, almost invariably, they lost access to it um, because it wasn't enough for them to care about. Um, I kind of thought, you know, if you give them, say, maybe five pounds uh, worth of Bitcoin and they see it go to 10 or 20, They'll be like, oh, now I'm interested. But I, I don't think that is enough skin in the game because, or maybe the timing was bad. By the time, you know, it had multiplied a few times, they had all lost their their private keys. And back in, the, in those days, I wasn't keeping copies for anyone. I was saying, this is a secret that only you can know and you need to keep it. If I was smart back then, I would have kept copies for all of them and then just swept them after five years or whatever. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I have sort of lost some Bitcoin in that in that regard um, by giving it away to people who, you know, haven't haven't understood it and haven't uh, gained anything from it. But um, there are success stories in there. Um, one guy who was uh, an assistant teacher, um, a really cool guy. I got along with well. I hung out with him outside of work. Um, he bought you know, a bit less than one Bitcoin for a few hundred pound um, in 2015. And then I heard from him in 2017 and he was saying, I've never had this much money before. Uh, I don't know what to do. It's on my phone. What if I lose my phone? And I was like, right. right, yeah, okay, sit down. We need to talk about hardware wallets. And uh, he, he, you know, cashed some out because he didn't really understand Bitcoin. So he sold some, but he still has some. I spoke to him recently, still got it. Um, it's still secured. So I told him, you know, good on you for, for keeping hold of that. And I hope you uh, enjoy the future because of it. So I feel like I am handing out over time, you know, little seeds of, uh, you know, happiness for people. Um, you know, giving them something that they didn't have, even if they didn't realize I'd given it to them. And that's what orange pilling people is all about, right? That That's, that's, but I mean, it is something's just dawned on me actually that I've I've never really dwelled on too too much. But let's say, for example, your your friend that you were just talking about there um, bought a Bitcoin, and 
2017, he contacts you and let's just pull a number out of the sky. Let's say it was 15,000 pounds. And his comment to you was, I've never had this much money before in my life. That's, that's, that, that, that's crazy to think about. Mm. When, when you think like, you know, 15,000 pounds, that's not a crazy amount of money. But for somebody to say, I've never had this much money in my life. And when, so where I'm going with this is we talk about, in air quotes, listeners, developing nations and, oh, they don't have anything. And, oh, you know, it's, um, it's such a shame. And, you know, we, we, how can we help? How can we help? How can we help? Whereas many of the people that are saying these kind of things don't have anything themselves. It's a lie. Like they, 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 they're sitting in their house watching their flat screen TV and feeling sorry for someone that lives halfway across the world in a, again, developing nation, feeling sorry for them, whereas really they don't realize they have less than nothing themselves. Yeah. Everything is a debt. Yeah, when you, when you net it all out, um, a lot of people are shockingly, uh, you know, behind. Um, and yeah, I mean, this guy in particular, you know, he's working as an assistant teacher He's not earning enough to save anything. Um, you know, he happened to have a few hundred quid at the time, you know, when I was hanging out with him. And I happened to just be convincing enough uh, at that time. And, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, you could call it life-changing. It was only 15 grand, let's say, less. But, I mean, he's been able to do stuff that he otherwise wouldn't um, you know, when I spoke to him just recently, it turned out he'd been traveling, um, which, you know, I don't think he could have afforded otherwise. So, yeah. Oh, man. Stack those sats. That's all I can say. <laughs> just, yeah. But I have to say, I'm let, struggling to, to bring myself to stack the sats at today's price level, though. Yeah. I've gotten too, too accustomed to cheap sats, but I've got to bite the bullet because I know, like American Hoddle said, biggest regret is taking your foot off the gas, you know, at the start of the bull market. It, and again, you know, it's very, it's so different for everybody, right? Everybody is in a completely different situation. And I saw that tweet from Harden. I loved it. And it's, uh, you know, it is, it is great, great advice because you, you, you don't know where this thing is going to end. And I think you said something along the lines of, well, the way I think about it, if you think like, you know, when you, perhaps you started stacking, like your friend had a few hundred pounds when the, when the price was a few hundred pounds, uh, you know, that going to 400 pounds was a hundred percent increase. Yeah. And going to 12,000 pounds was like orders of magnitude more than that. So now like, you know, going from 12,000 pounds to 15,000 pounds is, nah, it's not much more yeah, it's different. funny how that it suddenly, yeah. Um, yeah, it suddenly doesn't look. I don't know. Maybe it's because I've expected, you know, this this forthcoming bull run for so long that I'm not surprised by what we've seen in the last, you know, few weeks, um, because I fully expect, you know, to be to be up in the six figures next year, um, and so I know this will look like, you know, a tiny little, tiny little uh, ant's footprint at the start of what is going to be absolutely insane next year. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I'm going to talk for myself. I'm going to stack the hell into it. I mean, I love it. Stacking just makes me happy. I don't know about you, but it's it just literally there is something 
physically pleasing about stacking. And when I get my auto buy email, that puts a smile on my face. It's like, wow, that's amazing. And if I've got a, a spare shekel here or there and I can just go onto an app and or I just uh, use the exchange, it's like, yeah, that yeah. just makes me happy. It just makes me happy knowing that I'm taking one fr- one thing from one system and putting it into another. And yeah, absolutely. This other system's going to look after it. It it's it's all good. It might go down in the short term, but in the long term, it's going to go up. Yeah, I mean, after what we went through in March this year, I mean, hands right. are you know unshakable. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think. <laughs> You know, one thing is that recently I have been thinking uh, more and more about the act of selling Bitcoin because, um, because, like I say, I have these things in my life that I want to change and I'm going to need money to do that. And I've been mm-hmm. waiting for next year, knowing that I'll have the opportunity next year to mm-hmm. change my life. Mm-hmm. And um, that is obviously going to involve a liquidation of a portion of those sats um, because we don't have the circular economy just yet. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be selling more than I want to spend um, because I don't want to be holding fiat. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be thinking very carefully about the timing of when I choose to, to make those, those sales and, and spend that money. I've been looking into taxes, um, thinking about, you know, all the angles on that because I have a, I have a, a great life and a great lifestyle. Um, but like I, I, like I say, I can change it. I can improve it drastically this time around. You know, I've laid all the groundwork. This is the execution. And I'm not going to be trying to sell the top saying I know where the top is or, or when. Um, but I do know that next year, that is when a lot of this low time preference behavior can pay off. And I think the opportunity cost is low enough for something like a 5%, you know, maybe liquidation to, to make those big changes. Um, obviously, the opportunity cost is still huge, but, you know, that's what we've been sacrificing for, you know, all these years. It's for these payoff moments. Mm-hmm. So that is filling my thoughts quite a lot, even though I know it's blasphemy amongst the uh, the Bitcoin <laughs> community to talk about selling Bitcoin. Um, but I'll, I'll put my hands up and say that was always the plan. I mean, the, the plan is always to hold the vast majority, you know, far off into the future, a completely unforeseeable future, um, and potentially to obviously hand it down to the next generation as well. Um, you know, I don't have a, a huge uh, stack of Bitcoin, but I have... I have a couple of bitcoins, and um, I know that that's going to be plenty, which is well, let, a fantastic let, feeling. I, I want to get into this rabbit hole actually because there, there's a lot of this goes around on Twitter, and the, the, you have the camp that says "I'm never selling," fuck you guys, and then you have the camp that says, "What the hell are you talking about? You, you're being completely um, irrational." And then there's a third camp actually is like, "Oh, we should be transacting this thing all the all the damn time." Uh, right, so because that, this is what that third camp. They're nuts. Ignore that camp. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, first camp. Yeah, so you, those guys who say buy, 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 and never sell, they are right during 
you know, for three years out of four, they're right. Because you don't sell, you know, on the way down or in the trough of the bear market. Um, you buy. But those who are going to be so hardline as to say that you never sell, maybe they are, you know, no true Scotsman people. Maybe they're lying. Or maybe they, mm. they're just incredibly well off and they never have to. And maybe they're actually not as exposed to Bitcoin as, as they claim to be. I mean, for me, I'm highly exposed to Bitcoin and that's always been the plan. But the plan has, has always been to reap the benefit of that, you know, at some point being 2021, probably. And you, you touched on opportunity costs there. Mm. And this is something I, I want to bring up and, and discuss with you. What would have you considered the opportunity cost of not selling? You know, like let, let, let's go down that rabbit hole. Let's say you get to 2021 and you don't pick the high, but you do manage to change your life and you do manage to move your family to a, a different part of the country or travel, whatever it is that you want to do. And you do create uh, more opportunities for them, uh, whatever they might be. And you do create an opportunity for yourself. You can release yourself from that fiat job that you hate. And you can start looking at things and connecting with things that you are naturally drawn to, all because you did decide to, to, to sell a little bit of Bitcoin. So yeah, you can hodl all your life, but what's the, what's the opportunity cost of hodling? Mm. No one's talking about that, I don't think. Yeah, I think, and when I say that in 2021, the opportunity cost, um, you know, the, what, you, what you could get by selling, maybe that's kind of the inverse, the, the cost is going to be low enough. I mean, you know that in another four years, there's going to be another few zeros on the Bitcoin price. But the question then is, you know, what can you do in the meanwhile to improve your life? Um, so, yeah, in my view, there's always been a portion of my stack where the opportunity cost uh, was going to be low enough next year, um, you know, in, at a six-figure price. Um, and, you know, in the same way that, you know, my, my first Trezor cost me 0.1%. Bitcoin, right, right, yeah. Uh, you know, you know, the the car that I might buy next year is is going to cost me, you know, a boatload uh, down the line. <laughs> but I am I am at peace with that because I've thought long and hard about exactly how much I would value something like, you know, replacing my car, you know, having a reliable car, um, stuff like that. Um, so that's that's just something that, you know, up to a certain point, I'm willing to, to do. Obviously, I'm keeping the majority for the long term. But yeah, and I, I don't know whether you ever caught my episode with Friar Hass. It's it's a great episode about uh, dollar cost averaging or pound cost averaging, fiat cost averaging. We're trying to change the language. Yeah, um, he he brought up um, uh, DCA selling. Mm. Yeah, that has crossed my mind because um, you know when I when I considered my selling strategy, the first thing I did was worked out the maximum amount I could sell in one go um, without incurring a huge capital gains tax. Hmm. Um, and then I thought about it for another half a second and I thought I'd never want to sell that much all at once anyway because I don't know what I'd spend it on. I'd be sat there holding pounds thinking, 
what I knew mm-hmm. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> right. So that's why I say, you know, I'm only going to sell Bitcoin at the rate that I want to spend it because I don't want to be mm-hmm. holding fear in the meanwhile. And that effectively means, you know, a, a fiat uh, cost average out. Um, you know, one month I might decide there is something I want. The next month there might not be. I don't have to, you know, sell a huge chunk and then have it in my in my bank account where I'm, I don't want it. <laughs> so, yeah. What, how far away do you think you are from from releasing yourself from from the fiat job uh, have you have you put a, a number on that or do you... uh, that is i have thought long and hard about this and it's not really like <laughs> a solid line that you can cross it's more of a sort of field that you can sort of be in because it, it comes down again to the opportunity cost like mm-hmm. if i think that we are you know maybe 12 months away from the cycle peak and i can work out 12 months worth of living costs um, and I can calculate that I can afford to start selling now each month. Um, you know, I probably could. I might end up selling more than I want. That's why I'm sticking at this uh, this hamster wheel as long as I can bear it because obviously if mm. I do that, at the end of next year I'll have more Bitcoin than if I throw in the towel early. But realistically, there is no magical bitcoin price at which point i say effort i'm out because because like i say i'm not it's not as if i'm going to sell a large chunk at that point to to justify that move it's all there's a lot of moving parts um the other consideration is obviously the the tax year the fiscal year um Mm. i don't know how that works in the uk in the uk it's um it's april to march so there's basically a, a capital gains tax-free allowance that you can use each fiscal year. So there's an incentive to get some selling done before April of 2021. But that might not coincide with the price action that you want. Mm. You know, So that's just another moving part. You know, if, if Bitcoin went to 100 grand you know, in, in February or March, that might be the, the point where I could say, right, I have a few money now. I can use my my tax-free allowance for this year right now and be good for months and uh and i know that months later the price will be higher so i'll be even better but that is just a question of timing um and obviously the most prudent thing is to just wait the capital gains tax thing on bitcoin is just such a like you know to have to have endured all of the the sneering and all of the, you know, FUD and, and individualism that we've all gone through all of this time to put your money at risk, right? The, the money you've, you've really, really worked for to put at risk, riskier than anything according to anyone else, to then when you sell it for a profit, they're going to take... Yeah, the government's going to say, yeah, we were, we were behind you all the way on that bet. And where's our yes. cut? <laughs> As if. Yeah. I right. mean, it, it, I, I hate it. It makes me feel sick. I would, I definitely, my whole strategy is going to be based around paying as little tax as possible. Um, I think ideally in, in the UK, you can basically, um, you can sort of maximize it by sort of maybe just working part time, reducing your income. 
because you pay a higher marginal rate on your income than you do on your capital gains. But then you're going to have less. Look at what the fiat. Look at what the fiat system. It's Matt. Look at what the fiat system incentivizes. Less work and less productivity. It's just. It's so bad. Yeah, you know, it's it is as if it's geared for you know the the asset rich. Um, it's almost as if capital gains tax is just like a little token in the UK to say, yeah, we are, you know, we are, you know, taxing the rich. It's fine because, but you know, like it's been said re- on recent podcasts and stuff, like the rich don't actually sell their assets; they just leverage them. So, I mean, that's another angle that will probably become more feasible, you know, maybe in the next next kind of cycle. I don't know, but certainly, um, you know, the the working man pays through the nose. Um, and if you're just living on wealth, um, you can get away very, very cheaply. Um, and that pisses you off while you're, you know, one of the workers. But, you know, once you're a wealthy Bitcoiner, I don't think it's such a bad thing all of a sudden. <laughs> Although that said, um, you know, I have been hearing rumors that they're talking about raising the capital gains tax rate in the UK um, as to sort of offset the COVID costs, which is obviously hilarious because it's all to fake offset money anyway. The printing. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, and and a, a news story broke, I think, today, didn't it, in the Guardian about the the eighteen billion pounds that was malinvested into PPE um, hysteria. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I haven't read it, the story, but you know, the it doesn't surprise me. All the um, they're just wasteful, ridiculous ignorance <laughs> that goes on in government what more do you expect now it's funny that you you bring up that that point about somebody said on uh, you know uh, the rich um leverage their investments i think it was michael saylor actually that that mm. opened my eyes to that uh and then you realize many people don't don't even consider the difference between finance and leverage like the pleb is taking finance mm-hmm you know, I'll give you ten thousand pounds, and you give me one hundred eighty thousand pounds, and I'll go and live in this house and pretend it's mine. Whereas the the rich turn around and say, "I've got three hundred grand. Um, how can I leverage this? Mm. Yeah, what are you going to give me?" On I top hope of that? that like options emerge for that kind of thing. Um, I know that I think I've been hearing about Hoddle Hoddle having like lending, Bitcoin collateralized lending and stuff you know, decentralized. Um, that sounds great. I mean, the problem with that is that you kind of have to put that, you know, if you're going to borrow against your Bitcoin, you you don't want to lose your Bitcoin. So you need to kind of earn mm. with the money that you borrow. Um, so there's another, there's another issue. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe the, there'd just be an explosion of entrepreneurship when all these Bitcoiners can just fund all of their ideas. I mean, that would be fantastic. Unfortunately, I don't really, I've spent a lot of time thinking about maybe I should be one of the entrepreneurial class. Maybe I have what it takes. Maybe I should have what it takes. But I, I'm not 100% convinced. I don't have any great business ideas. Um, I don't have any lofty ambitions to to run a big business or anything. Um I would just like to be uh, independently wealthy and just live my own life. Um, you crazy bastard. 
Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I must be the Who only one. Who would ever want yeah. that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's it, right? <clears throat> People just want to live their lives with their families, be left alone, and you know, be productive within their communities if they can, add value where they see fit. And if you were to let human beings just do that, it would happen. Uh, you know, I... I I, I came from a very corporate background and it wasn't until I left that scene and went traveling, uh, my, my wife and I took our four kids traveling. We traveled for two and a half years. The, the faith in humanity that you reclaim by doing something like that it is unbelievable because when you're in your little bubble at your desk with your set client base and whatever else, fighting all these fires and the battles that you have to, like the political BS that's going on in the corporate world, and you're on the hamster wheel, it doesn't matter how much, like we were saying, it doesn't matter how much your, your, your salary might be, come the end of it, it's generally zero each month. And you're like, God damn it. You, you, you get pretty desperate mm. and you get pretty anxious and you get pretty angry. And then you've, You've got this silver screen all day long, beaming in all of this fear and dystopia from from other parts of the world. When we started traveling and just like exited the education system, and we exited the um, the country we were living in Singapore, we exited that country's system. Hmm. All of a sudden, we 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 had no identity to no particular country. We'd not lived in the UK for almost eighteen years. Uh, no, excuse me, at that point, fifteen years. And you turn up in a different country on different shores and you're like, we're just, we're just people. And we would home swap and people would meet and greet you like you were long lost distant friends or family. And it was just this most amazing, eye-opening experience. Yeah. And at the root of it, you know, human beings are communicative, helpful, and you want the best for your neighbor. And it's just all intuitively built in. Yeah. But it's been stripped away. Yeah. And it's just so bad. Yeah, I think it's, like you say, it's just people not being able to to look up from their desk or look up from their phone um, and and really see what's going on around them. Um, I have to say I'm, I'm not really a big traveler myself. Um, I've done... You know, I've been to a handful of different countries for short periods. Um, I don't think um, that my partner and my, you know, my family would do what you did and sort of uproots and and go, you know, on an adventure. I think um, they're a little bit more timid, uh, probably not up for that kind of thing. Um, but certainly in terms of just the community that we're already in, there's so much more we can do to engage with it. And all we need is the mental bandwidth and, you know, some slack when it comes to finances to, to do something that's not necessarily, you know, going to be the most profitable thing in monetary terms, but to just do other stuff. I mean, there are local things going on around where I am. There's um, a little sort of startup uh, farm type thing that's going on. Um, my other half is volunteering there right now. And um, I'd love to get involved as well. Um, if I wasn't just doing the nine to five, I probably would be because it sounds great, you know, what she's been up to over there. Uh, and they have 
um, a big group of uh, homeschooled kids uh, who go to this this little farm to do farm work and see the animals and learn this and that and help out and and that's really cool and and our our eldest um, has just started school um, because that's the thing to do and I obviously have had in the back of my mind that there is this this alternative um, you know I'd love to have the time to do homeschooling I'd love to uh, get into the community that already apparently exists you know of these other homeschooling families and you know start doing something collaborative um, in terms of education because I did really enjoy teaching you know that the actual teaching part love that you wouldn't mind doing that you know for free with with a, a group of people who are also contributing to some kind of you know collaboration in education um but yeah we just have to get off the hamster wheel somehow i don't know how to do it otherwise there are so many people that think in that way it's so many um i obviously have very deep ties with homeschool communities all over the world and they that they're, they're, they're still building building communities and, you know, trying to figure out ways to make all of this work and fight legal systems. Here in France, just a few weeks ago, uh, pre uh, President Macron, he, he declared as of 2021, homeschooling will become illegal. Like, Jesus. what are you, what are you saying? You know, like that. And but to most people, they don't care, right? He can get yeah. away saying that. 97% of people don't care. That's a yeah. non. That that's that's one part of the news they can breathe at. <laughs> <sighs> that doesn't that doesn't apply to me. Yeah. Right. Why? What next? Um, but to the, uh, the the small percentages, the three to five percent of, of French families that are actively seeking something better for their children, rather than a nationalistic curriculum, then this is a huge worry, and this is this is you know dreadful uh, hopefully it won't come to pass who knows but you know it's very very strict in the netherlands for example they take kids off families like if they if they're homeschooling but there is a lot going on in the space where we and michael saylor again talks about the virtual wave education is going to go virtual schools are going to get certifications that they need to to bypass these laws I, I, as much of the dystopic shit that's going on, I do remain bullish for the future because there are too many great entrepreneurs building so many different things in so many different sectors. And COVID actually is accelerating their work, um, oh my God, as we've yeah. seen in the Bitcoin space. And yeah, I, I, I'm getting really, really concerned about the, the pace that all of the, the change is happening. I, I wrote a tweet the other day that was like, it feels like we're being like hard forked off of, the legal system because we, <laughs> we don't want to change the rules and they are going around you know changing the consensus rules mm -hmm. the the kind of stuff that is all of a sudden illegal and one of the things that that petrifies me the most is this idea of the uh, mandatory vaccinations oh um, my god <laughs> oh my like, god i i personally um I don't think I need a vaccine. And also, I'm just so suspicious of of the government that I can't, I just don't believe that it is what they say it is. 
Do you know what I mean? And I can't verify what's in the, uh, you know, what's in the vial. I just don't, I don't know it. I, I can't understand it. So I bloody don't want it injected into me. <laughs> and uh, I can't believe that more people don't have that basic view that you shouldn't want something that you don't understand injected into your body. Um, but, you know, I plenty of people that I talk to are more than happy to, to have this vaccination and uh, creeps me out. I mean, it makes me think that maybe there, there's no hope for us because, you know, like 80 to 90% of the population trusts so blindly that they will just be injected with whatever they are told they need to be injected with. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you're saying. I know exactly what you're saying. And I'm in the exact same boat as you. Um, yeah. Like, n no thanks. Not for me and not for anyone nearest and dearest to me. Uh, it, uh, it, it really is a tough one. I say this every day. I'm like, the people are going to wake up one day. Like, it, uh, you can only push them so far. History has proved time and time again you can only push people so far before they snap. Um, well, I bloody, you, hope, like, I bloody hope they snap really soon. Right. You know, do you know what I mean? Before this gets I was going to ask up, you. like unrecoverable. <laughs> is are you like it? Maybe maybe the whole lockdown thing is to is to stop the snapping because you know if you can't congregate and discuss and have these conversations uh, openly. So we've never been in this situation before, right? House arrest. Yeah, I have no doubt that the, I mean, they're obviously, that basically in the UK, they've said that we don't have the right to to protest anymore, effectively. I don't know if they've said it in so many words, but people just get arrested and just get hand, big fines handed out to them just because they want to stand in a field together and agree on something. I can't, you know... I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. And that when I when I ask, you know, some of my close friends, um, they're very moderate, and they'll say, "Well, you know, maybe that is because of the spread of this virus. You know, congregations of people are probably a bad idea. Maybe I can give you that." But like, what I've asked a few of them is, "What would have to happen for you to say this isn't right, or I have to resist this somehow?" And a couple of them have said that if they were like physically forced to ha to have a vaccine that would be crossing a line for them um they wouldn't mind being like you know sort of pressured into it because they can't go to this or see that in unless they have it they probably just have it just for the sake of it but if someone came to their house and you know grabbed them and tried to forcibly inject them that's where they would draw the line and i've just sort of said that is so far past the line that that is unrecoverable. By the time they're storming your house to inject you personally, it's already all over. <laughs> you have to draw a line, you know, somewhere defensible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to use a quote from friends, the line is a dot to you. You're so far across yeah, the line. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So yeah, I, I struggle it's... with that with my friends, basically, like trying to to wake them up and say like surely you're not okay with this surely you're not okay with that they're talking about mandatory vaccinations like there was a um a paper um that came out that i believe was advice that was given to the government on 
whether it would be in contravention of human rights to do a mandatory vaccine. And the paper was, they were basically asked to argue that you could do it in spite of or without breaching human rights. Um, that's probably an inaccurate statement, but basically it was, the su like, summary is, yes, you can legally do it. And so I sent this to a group of my mates, and these are guys that I went to school with. Um, a couple of them are PhDs. They're all really super bright. They're all Bitcoiners. And a lot of them just went, oh, I hope, uh, you know, I hope the government doesn't listen to that advice. And I was like, well, yeah, but I mean, aren't you a bit like, aren't you a bit concerned? Um, do you feel like maybe you should speak up about it and make sure they don't just tomorrow morning say, we're going to take this advice now because that's already too late. You know what I mean? But I mean, I can't get them to, to, uh, to, to, to figure out how severe the situation potentially is. At what point is the social contract completely broken? That that's uh, what does it? Do you know what I think? The lockdown is is where it's broken, and I think the first lockdown that happened um, was perhaps justifiable because everyone, including me, was petrified about what this virus is. We had so much misinformation. Mm. Um, we had the scary models suggesting it was really lethal. Um, so personally for me, it felt justified then. And I've only really become really annoyed about this whole business, this second lockdown that started this month in the UK, because as far as I can tell, all the evidence says that it's not necessary. And that's that's where it's crossing the line. You know, if it, if it, it may have been necessary the first time, it isn't now. And I just think uh, that's we have to resist it. That's the line for me, the first line of defense. Is you have to say this is, should be illegal. There should be some lawsuits. There should be some heads rolling. It's very, yeah. I mean, <laughs> in, like you, one camp, I'm like, this is all fucked up. Dystopic shit going <laughs> on. And then the other, the other side... <laughs> I, luckily for me, I'm still I'm still at the point where the bright orange future is just outshining. You know, it's just casting yeah. a shadow on I, all of this shit. Will go, and we've just got to power through it and keep our heads down as Bitcoiners. Keep uh, we, spreading I mean, the word, we, we doing our bit. We, we like can defund the state soon enough. We just have to defund that thing as soon as possible. Stop all the bullshit. Um, yeah, like you, I mean, I have to, I have to uh, try and stay positive about it because it's easy to become really hyper depressed when you think that society is just nosediving. Um, but you know, we've got this ace up our sleeves, and mm. uh, we've got to yeah. run with it. Um, this is basically, you know, this is this is like I said in my message to you. We are, we have to save the world. It's all or nothing. Um, and all you have to do is buy Bitcoin to do it. This is it. Just keep stacking. And, um, you know, the, the, there is some great news coming out, as we were talking about uh, a little bit earlier in the show, but we didn't mention this one, that uh, the, the senator in, in Wyoming yesterday talking about, um, you know, getting the, uh, getting the seat and talking about her first point of order is 
bringing up Bitcoin, educating people about Bitcoin, and you know, at least trying to uh, like the state she's going to be um, head of uh, pulling that state onto a Bitcoin standard. Who knows where that goes from there? Um, so us plebs, we just got to keep doing our bit and, and stacking at the uh, the bottom end, and uh, you know, yeah, raise the floor. So, you know, that, that is one thing, right? The, the, the fourth turning talks about this. I don't know if you've read this book, but the fourth turning talks about uh, the, 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 the turning over of uh, political power from the boomer generation and that legacy system into the exa generation. And if we've got some very prominent exa Bitcoiners in place, then it's, it, you know, it's not going to take hundreds. It might take tens. To, to start making the differences we need to see. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I think it's great timing as well for that um, uh, that lady in, in the US who's is it just going into the Senate. Because um, if she can deliver that message on the, the backdrop of a roaring Bitcoin you know, price boom, um, it will land much better. You know, one of the hilarious things about orange billing, orange billing people is that you the prime time to do it is in the trough of the bear market that's when they're going to get the most out of it and it's also the hardest time to do it because no one gives a shit <laughs> <laughs> yes so yeah hopefully she'll have uh, some some tailwinds and uh yeah all right mate last question if you had one orange pill left to give who would you give it to and why right yeah i've thought about this um i would actually give it to to my partner to my fiance because I love her to bits, but she's not a Bitcoiner. Um, she puts up with me and my obsession with Bitcoin. Um, and it is something that I wish that I could share with her properly without feeling guilty for boring the, <laughs> boring the pants off her. Um, so yeah, that's my personal answer to that question. Yeah, it's a great one. And yeah, I echo the sentiments as well, because once the mind virus grabs you there's there's no there's no letting go of it you know there's no vaccine right. there's no vaccine for 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 bitcoinitis yeah unfortunately she seems to be resistant she's got natural immunity but um ah, i mean even even after holding all the way through 2017 and you know seeing the gains she was like well you didn't sell enough did you <laughs> uh, no, I didn't sell it. You're right. <laughs> uh, I have the same kind of conversations, but uh, one day there'll be a bright orange Lambo on your driveway and she'll still hate you. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, um, no, to give, to give her credit, she, she puts up with me really well. And uh, yeah, it, it'll be for the best. I keep reassuring her. Yeah. Well, mate, it's uh, it's been great to to get to know you and get into these rabbit holes and and for you to you know reach out and be one of the Twitter lurkers again. That uh, you know you, you've been in it a long, long time. And it, you close out your your message. Been wanting to join in the conversation for a long time, and I'd love to come on, do your podcast show as a fellow Britcoiner. So it's a really touching message. Um, Really glad you found the show, and thank you for thank you for stepping up. Thanks for contributing, man. Thank you so much. And I, I know there's going to be you know so many other Bitcoiners out there uh, in the same boat. Um, and yeah, it's it's great to talk Bitcoin. So thanks so much for having me. 
Excellent. So where can people come and interact with you? I'm sure your DMs are open. Meet as many Bitcoiners as you can. Uh, there's oh, gosh, a good yeah, community my, my over DMs there, right? Open. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, on, on Twitter, I'm at mphildg. Um, so yeah, hit me up. Um, I, don't, I don't get a lot of traction on Twitter. I have one or two likes per post. So if you want to throw me some interaction, feel free. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. Take care and uh, look forward to catching up again. All right, nice one. Thanks very much. Hey, guys, thank you for listening to the show and thank you to DG for taking the time to, one, reach out in the first place, turn up in the DMs and share the story and start the conversation and uh, and two for taking the time to to come on the show uh, and waiting for this one to be released sorry this one got delayed a little bit we um we, we, it's it's very important actually that that people out there listening to these shows that if you feel that you have something to add to the conversation that you reach out to to the podcasters because you know we, we are here and we, we most of us are more than happy to have uh, guests like uh, like yourselves on the show. Any of the plebs, any of the hornets, you know, this is a rally call. Let's step up and, and help move this conversation forward. I get a lot of great feedback from these kind of shows. And I know John does as well, John Vallis, when he does these. So keep, um, keep that in mind. And when something resonates with you, like it clearly did here for for uh, this young man. When he originally reached out, he, he was talking about th- that journey into the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole and then losing the the will to teach. You know, After you've now listened to his story, you, you understand why. And now seeing like a, a company go through an acquisition whilst all of this COVID nonsense is, is hanging over our heads. And thank God he has Bitcoin. How many of us don't? That's That's the sad thing. You know, we, we are like the 1% right now at the moment. So if you think about having gone through those experiences without Bitcoin, without that hope, as so many other people are, you could find yourself in a pretty dark place pretty quickly. And as we move into 2021, I worry that so many people are just wishing this year away and they think, you know, January is going to turn up and we'll be back to, you know, in air quotes, normal. You got a big shock coming to you. This this isn't going away for a long time. The 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 ripple effects of, of this past year are just going to keep coming back to haunt us at every turn. And thank God we have Bitcoin. And thank goodness that we, we can have these conversations on platforms such as this that still afford us to 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 get our thoughts out as uh, as quickly and as clearly as possible. Otherwise, we don't. We'd be relying on mainstream media and the, the governmental powers that are doing their goddamn best to completely oppress us right now. So, yeah, spread the word. Get as many people as you can learning about Bitcoin in. in in any way that you can, just just bringing it up every dinner party or whatever. You don't have to be the guy like I was going around trying to pill as many people as possible. It doesn't work. Just be ready for when that question comes up 
and have a kind of calculated answer and see where the conversation takes you. Anyway, I shall ramble no more. Thanks again, mate, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. You guys know where to head if you are in the UK, all you Britcoiners over there. If you're not a Britcoiner yet, make sure you become one. Get over to coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. They will have you covered. Bitcoin only exchange. And if you are in the US, swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. They have you covered in all the states. There's no excuse now. You can start stacking in a very simple way with a Bitcoin only company. Use forward slash bitten at both of these places. For Swan, you'll get a free 10 bucks. So thank you, as always, for you guys for listening and for sharing and liking, commenting, reviewing, bringing the banter with the memes on Twitter. I really love it. Thanks at Adam Woodhams One for putting the shows together. Thank you at Jim Reaper Music for the website once-bitten.com. You can head there or share that with your friends. And uh, I will leave it there. Thanks, guys. Take care. See you on the next show.